episode 168, The Healthcare Consumerism Tipping Point. Today, I speak with Gary Frazier from Ohm Healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Ever since I recorded in between episode 16 about healthcare consumerism, I've been getting a lot of feedback, let's just say. Apparently, I excel at stirring up trouble. <laughs> so I am pleased to bring you other points of view on the tangled web we call healthcare consumerism. Today, I speak with Gary Frazier, who specializes in creating open market consumer driven healthcare. Gary recently founded Ohm Healthcare, which stands for Open Market Healthcare, and also he runs a consulting practice. We discuss today the idea that it might not be overly realistic to think that we'll make consumers out of those individuals who are not, but to recognize that the next generation are born consumers and the change they will bring will demand new business models and practices. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Gary. Thank you. Happy to be here. Does it behoove a hospital system, just being particularly frank here, does it behoove a hospital system to engage or encourage healthcare consumerism? There's this great quote I saw on Twitter floating around the other day. I think it was by John Updike. If someone's salary depends on something, it's really hard to get them to do something counter to that. And, you know, to a large degree, if a consumer is willing to pay whatever and a hospital is not accountable or responsible or has no incentive to adjust the price accordingly, why would a hospital train a bunch of discerning price conscious? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. You're hit it on the head. As long as the incentives are set up the way they are. For all of the parties, all of the stakeholders, the hospitals, the uh, medical groups, uh, the health plans, if all of them are set up to where there is no internal incentives to do such a thing, then it will never happen. We will continue to basically be in this, this position where the hospitals have to get heads in beds, volume, even though acute care is sick care, and even though the rhetoric is about well care, we're saying all the right things about well care and outpatient and education for patients. Yet, if you look at the consolidation in the industry, if you look at the fact that we are building systems for sick care, we are expanding systems for sick care, actions speak louder than words, right? We're saying a lot about this environment where it's going to be more ambulatory and less on the acute care side, but the industry is not behaving in that way. And that means that the incentives, as you just pointed out, are not driving towards what we're saying we should be moving towards. And the same thing goes for the insurers and the same thing goes for the medical groups. They're all, we're all locked in this dance of reimbursement. Are there examples outside of healthcare which you might call attention to as an analog or, or a learning opportunity for those in the healthcare industry? Yes, yes. So, so, so a good example would be we can use the airline industry. Back in the day, ticket to fly somewhere cost 
generally an exorbitant amount. Very few people could actually fly, and therefore you had things like Greyhound and Amtrak and other options and driving to get to places because plane tickets weren't cheap. And then in came discount airlines. Obviously, prices were transparent. So, so I would say that's the difference maker because healthcare is probably the only industry that exists where you don't know how much something costs before you buy it. But I digress. The point is, is that uh, you had major airlines who had all the, I'll say, the makings and the tools and the resources to do what the discount airlines did. But for whatever reason, when the discount airlines came into play, the major airlines, they couldn't adapt. They still are kind of struggling with the discount airlines being able to come into their space and basically take away incremental volume and market share and grow in what I'll say the middle class space. That's because of what we call the innovator's dilemma sometimes. But you have a situation where you're so big and you make so much money doing what you do, your bread and butter, that to shift your resources or change your incentives to build a new book of business that leans towards the future, which is where discount, which is why discount airlines even exist, because we had reached a tipping point in our population in the world where there was a large enough group of people that really just wanted to shop on price. And then the internet came along and then you had kayak and you had all these, you know, all of a sudden it just tipped the scales to where even the bigger lines, they started to lose money because they had to lower their prices to compete against the discount airlines. And it just didn't work out very well. So you started seeing consolidation in that industry. You know, if I'm connecting the dots, what I'm saying is that we have very large health systems who are continuing to consolidate. We have very large payers, which are also consolidating. They are doubling down on the, the traditional status quo book of business because that's all they know. And that's how they're built. And the people who run those companies have been in those businesses for 20, 30 years. Now, we're getting to an inflection point. And we're already kind of there where you've got a new generation of what we call millennials primarily. They're larger than the baby boomer generation. They've already gone through as they age. Right now, they're like in their late 30s. But as they age, they've already toppled other major industries like the taxi industry, like the hotel industry, you know, with Ubers and Airbnbs. They don't like our current healthcare system. They don't like how antiquated it is because they're not sick yet. Our big guys, the people with the resources, the people with the wherewithal, just like the big airlines, but in this case, the hospital systems, they're not paying attention because it's just not a part of their payment package. It's just not a part of their book of business. We've been so stuck on sick care that what's going to happen is someone will come in, just like the discount airlines came in, and they're going to start running circles around the old traditional legacy health systems. And they're going to do it by taking on that population that is being ignored because they're not the sickest and the most expensive yet. So are you suggesting that millennials actually are healthcare consumers? Yes, they are healthcare consumers, but the system has not adjusted to make it easy for them to do what they do, to be effective healthcare consumers. So the answer is absolutely yes, they are. Someone said the other day that his daughter needed some sort of elective surgery and she price shopped in Miami, Florida and figured out that the cost of having the surgery in Miami, Florida was cheaper than having it locally. So cheap that she could afford the plane ticket to Miami so she could have a nice weekend away. And the surgery, (laughs) that might be an example of what you're talking about. No, it is. 
But she was, and God bless her, she was industrious enough to do her own research. Imagine if the system created a space for them to just be who they are. Because if you don't, then they're going to disrupt you anyway. They're going to make you do it or they're going to bypass you. You're absolutely right. These millennials, they're getting older. They are having children who obviously may need care. How would you advise a health system to begin to think about pivoting when they start to see the impact of consumerism? Before I, I was doing what I'm doing today, you know, I was VP of business development and strategy. These questions that you're asking me were every quarter, every month, every year questions about what should we be doing as a local system? We had three campuses. And obviously, we're a part of a much bigger system. But in our region, we had three campuses. And I was responsible for strategy there and partnerships in the market, which meant JVs with surgery centers and cancer centers and, you know, alignment strategy with doctors, right? So in that role, the dilemma that I faced as a strategist, as a business developer in that market, was that I would spend the better part of a year. So let's say now it's January. I'd have written business plans and bridge plans and strategies for growth and alignment that spoke to accountable care, that spoke to other service line strategies that were forward looking, outpatient strategies and all of those wonderful things, you know, primary care strategy, all the buzzwords, all the right things, all the right strategies. And in some cases, by midsummer, we would actually begin the process of executing on some of those strategies. But by the time we'd reach the fourth quarter, when not just our CEOs pay, but all of the executive suites pay was tied to the traditional bonus system from 10 years prior, which meant volume, 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 we were all at once asked to just drop everything, essentially. Never mind all that other stuff, the investment and the time and the resources that we're putting into that whatever that ambulatory thing is, is not going to really come to fruition until a year, two years from now. We don't know what's going to happen three years from now. You know, the arguments would start to mount to basically say, I just need you to focus on volume growth now. And that's immediate volume growth. That's ED. <laughs> that's, you know, go talk to all our surgeons to get our OR hopping again. And all of a sudden we would have fits and starts. And then the new year would come again. And then all the window dressing would go back up all right, what's the cool buzzword thing that we're working on? And you'd have fits and starts over and over again, and nothing would ever actually come to fruition in the ambulatory space. And I say all that to say that a health system, whether it's a regional health system or a larger health system, needs to begin to, I'll say, listen, pay attention, dedicate dollars and resources towards understanding what the future needs are, as in that younger millennial population. I know thinking about what they need right now today is one thing, but it's fairly limited because they don't, they're not that sick and they're really just having babies. But if you want to affect the future, then you're looking at a wave of volume larger than the boomer population, as I mentioned earlier. They are now 40% of the U.S. workforce. Everything that they do is online. And so if your strategy is not about communicating with them in the way they like to be communicated with, if your strategy is not about connecting with them in the ways that they like to connect. And what I mean is right now, they're not really into relationships or long-term relationships with doctors the way their grandparents were and some of their parents were. Their loyalty is a little more complicated. If you're not trying to understand them, then guess what? You're going to miss out when the rubber does meet the road 
when they do actually start to have real illnesses. It's counterintuitive, though, for health systems because we all want to build and continue to build around sick care. That's our book of business. That's what's the four walls of our hospital. But um, at some point, you're going to have to, like tech companies, somebody's got to start doing some R&D. Somebody's got to put something in, in, the, in the pipeline for the future because otherwise you're going to wake up and the future will be upon you and you'll be in the past. And I guess if you're comparing one health system to another, these large institutions that have dates 100 years ago on their cornerstones, is it your thinking that the health systems who are going to be the stars of the future are going to be the ones that either begin to change their business model right now or and or, I suppose, if they don't? then there's going to be somebody else that pops up, some discount airline that is disruptive as an analog that just steals the business away from these larger institutions, you know, right underneath their nose. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, so so I, w- I wouldn't say steal the business away. I would say fulfill a need because the business is already not, it won't be theirs to steal. <laughs> Think about it. And so the answer is, is, is yeah, I think if you're just now starting, then you're too late already, kind of. You can potentially catch up because you've, if you're a big system, you got a lot of money, you got a lot of resources, you can actually catch up in a short amount of time. But back to that airline analogy, the, the innovator's dilemma says that they won't try because to do so is to move resources away from their bread and butter business. But yes, if there's a forward-thinking health system that decides that they're going to dedicate an ample amount of resources and time and money into uh, addressing the needs of the up-and-coming population, which is not in the hospital yet, which means that they have to learn how to make money in other areas, in the urgent care space, in the telehealth space, in the retail space, right, on the internet, right? They have to basically say, our business is not a brick and mortar or or 100% brick and mortar, uh, acute care, med surge, ED, ICU business. Our business now, especially with with medical science the way it is, people are healthier. I mean, if nothing else, the drugs today and the techniques today keep more people out of the hospital because we've advanced. How can you not move away from sick care and figure out how you can make money in all the other parts of the spectrum. One of the things that you had said in an earlier conversation, institutions who were built from the beginning to be interoperable and to deliver value-based care, you know, your Kaiser, for example, Mm -hmm. definitely have a leg up over organizations who got their start in a more traditional model. Could you explain how that factors in here? I, I cut my teeth in, in California healthcare, although I've been in other other states. But in California, when you are a community hospital or even just another health system, your biggest competitor or one of your biggest competitors usually in any given uh, market is Kaiser Permanente. And that's good that you brought them up. And so what we would always try to do as strategists and business developers is pull together integrated delivery systems so that we can be like Kaiser. And what that meant was we'd go out and try to partner with the doctors. 
we'd go out and try to partner with another health plan. And we'd say, okay, everyone, let's come together and offer an integrated product to the employers in the market so that we can be competitive. It never really worked because Kaiser, like Geisinger or like Mayo, you know, you've got these centers that were born as integrated delivery systems. And Kaiser's the biggest one from the 40s where their economics are set up where there's a cost center and generally the hospital. There's profit centers, generally the insurance piece of it. And they capture lives not at the ED or not at the clinic. They capture lives way upstream. So when we tried to get together and mimic that, it was difficult because the health plan that we wanted to partner with, their economics were built to make money for the health plan. Our economics were built to make money for the hospital. The medical group or IPA's economics were built for the IPA to be profitable. And none of the three legs of that stool wanted to give up something so that the others could actually gain something. In other words, they weren't looking for the greater good. And so it never really fully worked out to where we could be competitive because we weren't born that way. Hospitals trying to be like Kaiser pull together integrated delivery systems. Kaiser and others born like Kaiser run circles around them. That's why Kaiser does so well. And do you feel like the healthcare consumers now and of the future recognize the value that such interoperability, I don't know what you want to call it, integratedness delivers? Is that actually competitive, a competitive, even greater competitive advantage as we move into this era? That's a tough one because, you know, it's a closed system. These systems are closed systems. So, so in order to benefit from Kaiser or an integrated, a true integrated delivery system, it means that you chose the, the entire package. And as a consumer, that's great because I, I, I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm paying for. It's all, it's almost all inclusive, if you will. It is all inclusive, right? And so that's the benefit there in an environment where if I'm not in this all inclusive deal, where you know I chose it uh, when during open enrollment. I'm now thrust into the open world where there is no transparency. I can't tick and tie the you know between price and value. The whole PPO environment is set up for a third party payment system where I just can't make heads or tails. So yeah, I mean, I, I think if nothing else changed, if there were no new entrants into the healthcare system or healthcare marketplace with something that's even more transparent, an integrated delivery system like a Kaiser or a Geisinger, you know, in, in the regional spaces uh, should tend to do much better because managed care is, is at least predictable. I at least know that I'm getting what I'm paying for. Even if I don't see all the various prices, I just know I pay this much per month in premium and I get primary, I get emergency, I get hospital, I get I get all this stuff. It's easy to manage for a consumer. And sad as I am to say it, that's a pretty big benefit in this era of no transparency, which we were discussing at the top of this conversation. I think we've established that at least currently, it doesn't necessarily behoove an IDN or a health system to encourage consumerism. You know, they really just don't have any sort of incentive or vested interest. They almost have the opposite incentive to not encourage change. Who does? Who has a stake in seeing that patients are circumspect? Everybody. 
Now, hear me out. By everybody, I mean that no matter who you are, hospital CEO, chief of staff, chief medical officer, top surgeon, you also are a patient or one day will become a patient. If not yet, your mother, your father, your child are patients. And so in our industry, we're both. In the moment when you are a patient or your family member is a patient, all of a sudden you're looking through a different lens and you hear it all the time. I've heard hospital CEOs say, if this place is not a place that you would send your mother, then we have a problem, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we want this to be the kind of place where you want to come. Now, of course, that's rhetoric, but literally when the time comes, the rubber meets the road and you're going to take your mom somewhere, your child somewhere, all of a sudden we become consumers or patients. Sometimes the nurse that works in one hospital takes their family to another. All of a sudden we start behaving like consumers. So, so, so who matters and who, who's going to change all this? It's the same people. They have to change their headspace and move into, okay, when it's my turn to make a choice, what am I going to do? Do you envision that the change agents are exactly the individuals that we're talking about here? It's, it's people within the industry who realize there's a vested interest to change. And maybe those are the people who recognize the need. They always say that one of the reasons why we've got dry cleaning apps and not healthcare apps is because the individuals in Silicon Valley who are creating the apps clearly have issues with dry cleaning. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so maybe the wave of innovation is going to come from those people who recognize it and then kind of as a long tail you know, and I'm thinking of disparities in care here. You know, if you've got a population who is healthcare literacy is an issue, all of the issues that come with that cohort, they're just simply going to benefit from the change agents taking care of themselves. Yeah. And so that, that's a great segue because that's that's kind of one of my beliefs about what's going to drive change. I believe that one of the things that has kept change slow, and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this, but it's a generational change or generational differences within the executive ranks of the system. Most of the people that are there in the system, in the CEO ranks, in the executive ranks, are the same people that have been there for the last 25, 30 years. It's not that they don't see that they should change. It's not that they don't have it in their heart to do things differently. But what's in the best interest of someone who is near retirement, it's not to start dreaming up some change that's not going to take effect for another 10 years, but it will affect your paycheck today, right? What, you're, what you need to do if you're 60 some odd years old or 70 even, and I know many CEOs and, and executives and CFOs and COOs in that space, you're pretty much going to stick to the status quo until your time is up. And you're going to let the next up and comer, younger, maybe millennial age leader be the person to, you know, start putting into effect the long term five to 10 year strategy. So that's something that I think we will see over the next five to 10 years as the boomer generation retires and the younger MHAs and MBAs that are coming up into the system, they're going to bring with them a new way of thinking. They're going to bring with them some personal experience that I just mentioned, right, of being patient or their family being patient. And they, I think, will be the ones that will, when partnered with some of the Silicon Valley thinking, will start to actually disrupt and change the industry. I interviewed Dr. Josh Luke, who had a very, he agrees with you. 
he was very much in alignment and said had a very similar sentiment that it's just it's going to take a new new way of thinking at a minimum. So talk about ohm healthcare and how all of the philosophies which we have embedded in this conversation are coming to bear with this initiative. Ohm stands for open market, uh, OM, Ohm Healthcare, and Ohm is to healthcare what Air what Airbnb is to the hotel industry. To use another industry example, the Marriott started I don't know in the '60s, a long time ago, and uh, they're bricks and mortar. You know who they are. Airbnb started about nine years ago, and they now have more listings than the Marriott, over 1.5 million listings. They don't own any real estate. They're not a hotel company. They don't hire hospitality people, right? What they are is what's called a matchmaker platform. And that matchmaker platform is, a, is similar to Uber, even, right? Where you're matching drivers to riders. You're, or in Airbnb, you're matching renters to rentees and so forth. Well, in healthcare, what we can do is take that same technology platform, right? Uh, which basically levels the playing field. I mean, that's what that's doing. It's making it so that the little guys can do what the big guys can do. That's why the Airbnb person, every every grandparent that that owns some extra property in in Maui can use it as an Airbnb when they're not there. What that does is allow for organic growth, rapid growth and scalability, and it meets the demand and access demand for that book of business, which in that case is hotels. There's an app, so there's technology that allows that allows everything to happen where a patient can go in or a consumer can go in and shop around and see prices and see ratings and see reviews. But the real value or the real business is the fact that we're changing the economics. So it's also a network. We're creating the first cash-based provider network, which is to say that local providers will be offering their services at cash rates or direct pay rates. What you'll do is go around, get local providers in a geography to say that they would like to be part of this network. And, and as you say, cash pay. So you negotiate the cash pay price, it sounds like. I do not negotiate a cash pay price. In a free market environment, no one negotiates the cash pay price except for the provider and uh-huh. except for the consumer and the, and, and, and the seller. So you show the cash pace price. So somebody goes into the app and they look and, okay, here's the eight places you can get an MRI and here's what they all cost. That's right. And then what happens in Economics 101, the consumers and where they go dictate to the sellers or the providers what price point they need to be at. And so you start to see equilibrium. You start to see prices come down generally because now they're being competitive. Now price and quality is starting to connect. Because the consumers are able to say, you know, I went to Dr. So-and-so or I went to this imaging center and service was great. It was efficient. I didn't wait two hours. And uh, yes, it's well worth it. And then other consumers see that and they start to migrate their volume. The other competitors in the market will have to say, wow, we need to step up our game. We need to make sure people aren't waiting as long. We need to make sure our staff is friendly. All of those things start to take effect in healthcare, whereas today they don't. And where can people go for more information about OM if they are interested in looking into this? Well, um, we have a website, www.omhealthcare.com. And we will be soon, as in the next 30 days, February, uh, releasing a series of what we call uh, webisodes to kind of start to talk about. uh, So it's kind of like a videotaped focus group where we have millennials in the room and uh, we have a primary care physician in the room. And we're talking about the system 
as it is and where a free market open environment would actually be helpful. Uh, and the fact that this generation now is poised to do just that. So we're really focusing on that millennial population because I think they're being ignored. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Gary. Thank you. It was fun. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.